0: Better way to do this Let me show you a better way Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Outback with Jack. I guess it's a special edition. We usually only do these on uh, Fridays. I am, of course, here with you on a Monday. And uh, with a short week and as uh, good as these have been going, I thought I would just uh, just do another one for you. I- I'm up in the air about what to do tomorrow. Uh, for the podcast, and for those of you tuning in on YouTube, there is an audio podcast where all of this uh, all of this information can be found uh, in audio, and also can be found. Uh, Thirteen years of information that we've been putting out on self sufficiency, self reliance, independence, and liberty, and of course you can find it at the SurvivalPodcast dot com. All right, so we got a bunch to talk about today. I'm going to try to uh, move re- relatively quickly. Those of you watching the live stream, I want to interact with you. The best way to make sure I know that a comment is for my attention is all caps. But if you do it now, it's going to get buried by all the other chat. And what will happen is I'm going to go through our 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 pre-planned talking points that I have for you. And then when I get done with that, uh, I'll invite people to come on with us. Who knows who will show up? Sometimes we have people like Humble Mechanic or Nicole Sauce come by. Sometimes just some members of the audience want to weigh in on something. Uh, But hold your questions and comments that are directly for me. For best results till the end. If you throw something up in the middle, I might see it, but I might not. All right, guys, so let's start off. I wanted to uh, cover a big variety for you today, and I want to start out um, with the written house verdict, and I want to talk about the coming lawsuits and then, but what does it mean for the average person? So the first thing I'm going to say might upset some people if you're not going to think rationally and logically about this. I am very happy that Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty because he was not guilty. Clearly his actions uh, fit the definition of self-defense under the law in the state where he was at. He did nothing illegal. It doesn't mean he didn't make any mistakes. I, I, I I have cautioned people from the very beginning of this, let's not lionize this because if we lionize Rittenhouse and we create a hero out of Rittenhouse, instead of somebody that was forced to do something he would have preferred not to do that was in a bad situation, that was least in part of his own decision-making, we can encourage this behavior in people that are not rational and logical and well-disciplined like Kyle. The biggest compliment I can give Kyle in this whole thing is the night of the shooting, the discipline with which he defended himself. Um, I think most police officers put in that situation would not only have used lethal force, they would have probably harmed bystanders. And where you saw this at the, the highest level was the last individual he shot the guy he blew a coke can sized hole in his arm if you've seen the unedited video it's pretty impressive what a what a, what a 223 round can do to a bicep and a guy that was pretty deserving of it as soon as he does that there's another guy charging at him he trains the weapon on that guy now he's just been through all this shit he's had people screaming at him kicking him hitting him with skateboards, saying, get him, kill him, kill him, kill him, get him, right? All that's going on. you got to think of the adrenaline on that. And when that guy puts his hands up, he does not fire. And I, I watched some of the trial. I didn't watch all of it. But I think if that defense attorney didn't make a point with that one, he missed something. Obviously, it worked out anyway. Um, but, yeah, I think that everything that should have happened after the fact happened, I think being a 17-year-old kid loading up with an AR – and walking into the middle of a riot, specifically with no real others. There wasn't like a group put together that had each other's back here. There wasn't maybe somebody a little bit more mature to say this is where we should not go. A kid doing that was a mistake. And you know who would agree with me? Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle is on record saying, if I knew it was going to happen that night, I would not have gone. And that, that, if there's anything that makes this kid a hero, it's that being able to admit that to say that to say that the entire thing was a mistake yes i was put in a position where i had to use self defense yes if you put me in that position again i would do it again but i also could have avoided it there there's a lesson in this now what does it mean though i see a lot of people saying like they're actually like this they're acting like this was an election result right like the tide's turning i do think the tide's turning maybe we'll talk about that but it has nothing to do with this This is not the tide turning. We didn't just have an election and a state flip or something like that. Like people are literally making it out to be like we're winning now. What do you think we're winning? A kid has to live for the rest of his life with the fact that he took two lives and severely injured a third person. And even though I think most of us agree that those three people were kind of the scum of the earth, you you still took a life. And that life now has no possibility of redemption. And it's the last thing that you want to do. But regardless of your opinion of that, what it means for you is absolutely nothing. Nothing's changed. Your life will not get any better because Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty. Nothing in your state, nothing in your backyard, nothing anywhere that actually affects you directly as a person has changed. The other side of it, though, the other side of it, um, had he been found guilty, your life may have changed. It may have become legal precedent that – you have to allow yourself to be beaten with an inch of your life before you can actually defend yourself, at least in that state, right? I mean, it really, it really could have like it was a very important verdict, but the, the, the not guilty didn't make your life better. Please don't, please don't mislead yourself to think that it is anything significant in your life because it's not now empathy totally different. My wife literally cried when that kid was found not guilty because it was such a relief to her. She's that kind of caring person. I get all that, but your life won't change. In fact, your life really won't change when, when elections generally happen either, because the ring of power is one ring to bind them all. But really a a result in a criminal trial doesn't change your life. Don't mislead yourself. Now what could change things? And I'm very pro this. I've seen a lot of people talking about Kyle suing and I would, if I were Kyle, I would sue. I would have a a dream team of litigators, and I would sue every single person that I could in this. Specifically, people that referred to him as a white supremacist. That is one of the worst things you can be referred to in our society today. It is incredibly damaging to a person's relationship or a reputation. His life has been forever altered. For every person that loves him, there's a person that hates him now. There's going to be plenty of companies that won't give the guy, that won't hire him. There's going to be schools that won't let him in. He needs to sue for damages everywhere. And then I would love to see Sandman, Rittenhouse, media. That could make a difference. Those two together, when this is all over, they could take like 10% of their wealth that they'll have combined, and that's going to be in excess of $10 million. But if it was $10 million bucks, you could create an endowment that funded real media forever in perpetuity. That might actually make a difference. But no, your life didn't get better. We, uh, we did not, we did not get a win here. Kyle Rittenhouse got a win that he well deserved. And that's how it should be taken. And I do think the right of self-defense got a win. But that right existed. And I don't mean existed in the way that your rights come from your creation and they pre-exist to any government or state. I mean, in our country, that right existed. This trial was a threat to that right, but it didn't Make that right come into existence under our legal framework. That's why he was found not guilty. People actually judge the actions and the law as appropriate. The jury did its job. Next up, the five stages of grief applied to cryptocurrency. I just realized this and it's one of those things like I, I fancy myself being kind of like the guy at pattern recognition, like, like pattern recognition through the roof. I see patterns everywhere. It makes me a curmudgeon, you know? It, it really does, because people be like Lou. Did you see this? That's the same shit again, right? You know. Um, but the five stages of grief in crypto, and what did it for me? And it's probably the only thing this human being has ever, if she is a human being, has ever done for me in her existence. was Hillary Clinton? <laughs> Hillary Clinton was pretty triggered on crypto this week, and uh, or last week. And there's articles out everywhere. You can find them for yourself. I'll add it to the uh, the show notes on the audio podcast. She said, "Bitcoin can destroy nations. Bitcoin can destroy nations. It can lead to the complete destabilization of modern nations." Triggered much, Hillary? <laughs> Anybody else here thinking, "Well, that's the plan, baby, right?" In the words of Jimmy Buffett when he was talking about uh, purple passion, he said, "Like the girl you're with can't even taste the taste the alcohol. like I can't even taste the alcohol." He said, "That's the plan, baby, right? Like that's the plan." Yes. The destabilization of nation states, at least to the point where either, you know, if they're not going to, we're not going to move into a stateless society, which is multi-generational thinking big time, um, at least to the point where they're weakened such that they don't have the control over people that reside within them that they do today, which is way past tyranny. If you don't think you live in a tyranny, I'm sorry you don't understand reality. Uh, you have Stockholm syndrome or something like that, but Bitcoin is the biggest thing to weaken the nation state. Because it's the biggest thing that's ever come into existence to weaken the central banks. If you want control of a society, it is first and foremost paramount that you control their money. If you control their money, you control everything. You can control everything if you can control the money of a people. And Bitcoin says, thou shall not control thy money, jackasses. Right? You can compete for it, but you can't control it. And this led me like, okay, she's angry. She's angry. She was part of the group, by the way, from what I could see in the very beginning that was in stage. Well, she stayed in stage one a long time. Stage one of the five stages of grief. We all know what it is. Denial. We've seen denial. We've seen denial on all sides. We've seen, you know, Goldman Sachs kind of move toward understanding, hey, this is new reality. But in the beginning, it's worthless. It's useless. Fed share. It's worthless. It's useless. It doesn't mean anything. Peter Schiff is clinging to that one ring of gold, man, like Gollum. Like, he is staying in denial in perpetuity. Funny thing about Peter Schiff. Do you know that they sell gold? That Peter Schiff sells gold? Do you know they accept Bitcoin for gold? Funny that. Now, maybe they're converting immediately to cash or or something. I don't know, but they they may not be either. That's an interesting little tidbit right there. But then what comes after anger? So you got the Hillary Clintons of the world now. It's going to destroy the nation states, whatever, right? So what comes next? What comes next? bargaining I saw that I saw that last week too, so we all know that El Salvador has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender, and the banks in El Salvador came out and made a statement. We can coexist with Bitcoin. That's bargaining now bargaining doesn't always completely fail, but the way I took the statement when I read about it was that they think um, that they believe that when they say that, that life for them can pretty much continue as it always has, right? So Bitcoin will be its own thing and will still be the banking system, will still have as much power, authority, control, etc. Um, I think that might be more true in the United States with our banking system and the central banks because in the United States, as long as you have an ID card, if you want a bank account, you can get one. It's really easy. I think it's going to be harder on the banks in countries like El Salvador. You know, a huge portion of the El Salvadoran population has been denied a bank account for a very, 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 very long time, like ever, right? So now you're in El Salvadoran, you download something like Strike or another Lightning wallet or uh, the the national uh, Lightning app or something like that. And all of a sudden, you have all the features that you really need in a bank. You can actually walk from one place to another without having money on you, dollars on you to have yourself, like, robbed. Um, you actually have that security uh you can take payments immediately you can convert them immediately and you can make payments instantly like those are major things that we use banks for do you, do you really think you're going to be like you know what let me give the banking industry another try let's give them another shot i mean i know they shit on me for the like my whole life i know that i my parents my kids like none of us could even qualify for a bank account in el salvador but yeah let's 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 see if we can still uh, work with them or do you think you might have a little bit of a negative sentiment there so they're bargaining and I mean, if you think about it, why do you have a bank account, right? You have a bank account so you can get paid, so you can make payments, right? And so you have security for your money and so you can borrow money. I and mean, that's what banks do, right? For the average person, they loan you money. We have DeFi for that. You get paid. There's no reason we can't move to a system where banks play a very minimal role in us getting paid. Strike already has get paid through the banking system, but but get your money in Bitcoin instantly, right? So that that's there. Um be able to pay your bills. We're coming up with ways to do that and secure your money. Your money's more secure in Bitcoin than it is in the bank. Let me explain to you why. FDIC insurance. Yes, if the bank goes broke, you have FDIC insurance. But what if the government decides you're a bad boy and they want your money? What if the government decides they just want to look at all your records to see if they can find anything you've done they don't like? And what if they decide because of that they want to freeze, lock, or seize the money in your bank account? You know who stops them? Absolutely nobody. I mean, if you look at all the transgressions of government, the biggest threat to your money in the bank right now is probably the government. It's not a hacker. It's not the bank going bankrupt. It's the government itself. And you're putting faith in government when you put faith in security within the banking system because the government's really who's claiming to provide it through FDIC insurance. So Yeah, I think the whole denial might go for a while for some of these institutions. Like, not that they can't continue to... I think there will be banks and things like that. I mean, you know what we need banks for in the new world with crypto? To issue loans of the currency against the money, which is Bitcoin as collateral. That's something we really want to have banks for. It'll let us not pay taxes on our wealth and not spend our wealth and run the same game that billionaires have been playing and millionaires have been playing for centuries with real estate. With something that's more portable and not directly taxed, like the property tax on real estate, right? To create tax-free cash flow, we need a bank for that. Otherwise, <clears throat> then there's depression. You, you you don't see depression very long because let's let's be honest, the parties involved don't want to talk about it when they reach that stage. And what's the last stage? Acceptance, right? Acceptance, like hey, you know what? We should probably get on board with this. You you see everybody starting to do this now. Right. you got Visa hiring crypto experts to integrate crypto into the Visa network. you got billionaires arguing over the right path to take with crypto versus is crypto a thing or not. So, yeah, start looking for the five stages of grief whenever somebody who thinks they're important comes out and says something. Um, totally different subject. I think right now is the time, if you've not done it yet, to set up your indoor hydroponics of some sort. And don't worry, next week, probably on Tuesday, I'm thinking, I will be doing a show on hydroponics. And the most basic indoor hydroponic systems, we're going to talk about Kratky, we're going to talk about air pump driven systems, and we're going to talk about circulation pumps. Right, So we're going to talk about three different ways to do it. We're going to talk about scaling it, Back from my original uh, setup in the little mini greenhouse, I'm going to play with that over Thanksgiving weekend and see if I can come up with some ways to scale back the plant count because I built that system, if you saw it back when I built it a couple of years ago, for maximum number of holes, right? I wanted to be able to start it because that system was designed to start plants to plant out in the garden. That is part of why I think now is the time, but I'm going to scale it back to more of a growing system. And I'm going to come up with a list of plants that make the most sense in my opinion for um for growing during the winter season for food, for salad for yourself. It's going to be really simple. It's going to be really simple as far as what system you use, you'll have the choice of whatever you want. But the reason I think now the time is the time is I think we're going to have a pretty hard winter. I think it's coming again. I think if you go look at farmer's almanac and they're pretty damn good track record they're forecasting a harder winter than normal for most of the country. That doesn't mean that like the the, the ice apocalypse is coming and we got a new ice age by the you know by February or something like that. It doesn't even mean that like here in Texas in February last year we had that 11 day stint where we didn't go above freezing. In fact, we had days that were below zero for the lows, and a 68,000 acre lake a few miles from here literally froze over. Short to shore, that doesn't happen. That doesn't mean that's going to happen again. You know, actually, last year in Texas was a mild winter. I know you don't think it was because the TV just kept showing you pictures of the ice apocalypse, right? Well, that was only 11 days. If you take those 11 days out, we barely had any days where we went below freezing. We've already gone below freezing this year, and we've had quite a few days that are like 36, 37 degrees already. So when I say a colder winter, I mean more consistently cold throughout the winter this year. So that's another reason to want to have some fresh veg that you're producing uh, for your nutrition in your home and then to have kind of that safeguard of being able to use that because those systems are great for starting plants so that you can maybe hold back a little longer before setting out some of your plants in the spring this year because I'm thinking you might have to. If you're going to be gardening. So, and we'll be talking more about that next week. And I just want to kind of prime the pump with that one and, uh, how it's going to be a little bit different this time around. Um, then I found this interesting. We, I think we should in, in shows like this with a variety topic, when something is dominating our life, the way that the, the COVID's pandemic is, I think we should at least talk about anything that's new in it, uh, at least one point. The most interesting thing and uh, disturbing thing. That I, I heard over the last week and boy, that was a lot of competition in that one was, you know, some people that like just want to know what's in the, what's in the jabs? What's in there? Well, they filed a freedom of information request to find out what's in, what's in the Pfizer jab, right? And the government came back and said, yeah, we'll, we'll honor the FOIA request, but we need 55 years to do it. What in the fuck? Okay, you can verify what I just told you when I put together the audio notes for this show and put out the actual episode, which will be just a bit after this live stream ends. I'll put a link where you can see for yourself that this is not some shit Jack made up. This is a real story. And I know a lot of you guys listen to me all the time. You don't doubt me. Who knows who's going to hear this today or going to watch this video in the future or what have you. They might think that's insane. It's not. It's a thing. It happened. The federal fucking government, said, yes, we'll honor your Freedom of Information Act request. Okay, that's not a choice, by the way. That's a requirement of the government. That's what Freedom of Information Act requires. If it fits this criteria, then you have to do it. We'll do it, but we want 55 years. Some people probably wonder why I don't do as much as I did in the beginning on COVIDs, about the jabs, about government overreach, etc. See, it's things like this. So I think if you hear that and you then put any faith in anything that the establishment's saying at this point, you're beyond my reach. You're not ready for somebody to give you the truth yet. There is nobody. I don't care how left on the spectrum you are. I don't care how okay you are with authoritarianism. There is nobody with a logical, rational brain that should think that's okay. And then once you see that behavior, If you trust the entity using that or exhibiting that behavior, I only come with with two possibilities, right? You're in on it. You're part of it. Or you're stupid, right? You have to be stupid. You can't have ignorance as an excuse at this point because you have the knowledge. You have the knowledge that the federal government just responded to a Freedom of Information Act request requiring 55 years before they give the answer. It's not a typo. Right. And again, I think if you need more than that, I don't think I can help you moving on. Um, I put out a post on MeWe last week and said, Hey, give me some talking points for out back with Jack episodes. One was a question about making the transition from side hustle to full time business. So you are going along, you're doing your job, you're working and you get to a point where, you know, I've really started to get some traction on this side hustle. I'm making some money. How do I know when? to pull a plug on work and go full-time with the business. Let's start out with the one thing that a lot of people don't put enough consideration into, and that is your health insurance. This is so much easier if you are in a situation where you are one half of a couple and your spouse, their job covers your health insurance. Everything's easier because it's a huge expense. Um, Dorothy and I pay over twelve thousand dollars a year in health insurance, and it covers almost nothing because you know the government fixed it, right? Um, It's there in case one of us ends up needing you know major cardiothoracic surgery due to a freaking car accident, or one of us gets cancer or something. I mean, that's really why—that's really the only benefit we get out of it. Is that if there's something catastrophic that happens, we don't go bankrupt. That's it. It's bankruptcy insurance. And, um, man, it's, uh, it's awful. It's awful. And so you have to factor that cost and you, you can't not factor that cost. The other cost you have to factor is paying your own social security. Now you can shelter a lot of your own SSI by setting up the right type of entity, corporation, and then paying yourself a salary and then paying yourself the balance as basically a corporate owner as a distribution, because that's not subject to SSI. But you can't, you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. So now you go from half the cost of SSI to the full cost. Now that does change things a little bit, because it also comes out of the expense side of the equation, so it reduces your federal income tax. But it's not a dollar-for-dollar reduction. So those things need to go into your budget, and they need to go and excel, and you need to balance that and understand, hey, am I going to actually be able to afford to live this way? The other side, there's nothing, and I mean nothing, that leads to adaptation and solutions like not having a choice. When you pull the plug and you take the jump and you make the leap, somehow, as long as it's a legitimate business with legitimate income at that point, most people figure out how to make it work. And they do grow it larger, and that's always the balancing point, right? Like, if I'm going to take this to the next level, then I need to spend all my time on it, not 20, 25 hours a week. I agree, but when you're asking me this, you're asking me to tell you what to do in your life. And, man, I'm not comfortable, like, making you comfortable making a decision because Jack said so. Like, just do it, right? Like, oh, man. There are people that if you know every single aspect of what's going to happen, yeah, that's that's where you're at. You're at a point you to do it or you don't. There are people where maybe four or five more months makes sense. And I think that if you are in a position where you're not sure about making ends meet, do this experiment for me. For a month or two, take all the money coming into the business, which you should be doing most of the time anyway while it's a side hustle, and spend none of it on any of your expenses or any of your wants, the only, only place that money can go that's acceptable in this situation, if you're looking to transition, there's, you know, if you're paying off debt with it, okay, you're not looking to transition. You look to pay off debt, then we look to transition, right? So if we've got our debt in line, we'll have full-time income, side hustle income. That side income gets stacked. Cash, Bitcoin, I don't care how you stack it, stack it. Stack it for two, three months. Build up a cash reserve. See if you can do it. Then if you really want to be sure, invert it. Start stacking the salary and try to live off the income. And if you're like, but, but, you know, I don't know that I can do that because I haven't grown it yet, but you won't have grown it yet. Try for a month. See how much deficit there is. Try it. And if there's a deficit, do it another month. And if you can reduce that deficit to zero, you now have a slush fund and you know you can do it. And now you can transition. There's other ways to transition. You can you know speak to your your place of employment about going to a 4-day work week. That gives you another day to work on your own shit, right? That that that's another thing that you can look at doing. And let me tell you why. This is a kind of a side note in this. If you want a raise, if you want a promotion, if you want to negotiate terms like working from home a couple days a week. If you want anything from your employer that is reasonable to ask for. Right. If you make 30 grand a year and you want $90,000 a year without doing anything more than you're doing now. No, that's not reasonable. But if it's reasonable, if you've been there a long time, you've been subject to three percent raises and you've done a great job and you've advanced and you should be paid better than you are right now. And you're actually important to the company. There has never been a better time in history than right now to go into your boss, your supervisor, whoever you report to and say, I would like to have a discussion about the following bullet points. And I don't want to do it right now. Let's set a time when we can spend half an hour together. And there's some things that I would like to discuss about my future at this company. There's never been a better time. Do you know why? Because people can't find anybody. For the first time in my adult life, the average, not the exceptional, the average employee has the higher hand in the negotiation. Ever. It's not going to stay that way forever, guys. If you are due a raise, go ask for it. We're going to say no. Okay, fine. Maybe you go look for something else. Maybe you you just accept they can't give you a raise. Whatever it is. But I'll tell you what they're not going to do. They're never going to fire you for asking for a raise unless you're a dick about it. Like, if I don't get a raise, I'm going to quit. Well, then you might get sent packing. But there's never been a better time. We were out at a home something. It was called Dorothy Wanted a New Christmas Tree. I took her out and got her one. And uh, our old tree is like 15 years old. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's time. And I stood in line forever with that flipping tree, man. Like for, it was like this line. It went forever. And when I finally got up to the, where the registers were, they had three people stores packed. They had three people running registers. They had signs everywhere. We will interview you and hire you today. I don't think you might not want to work in a retail establishment or something, but how desperate are you when you literally have signs up? We will interview you now and hire you today. You're desperate. We went to one of our favorite restaurants the day before. Talked to the manager. He came out. He knows us. You know, we go there a lot and. He comes out, we're talking, we're talking about, you know, what are the opportunities in the restaurant industry? right now? it's like, in Texas, they're through the roof. We can't get anybody. You know what they're paying? Dishwashers? $15 an hour to wash dishes. $15 an hour to wash dishes. You you guys, you know, Keith Snow, right? He's an occasional, and occasionally shows up on our expert council. Um, Pretty good chef. He's chefed at some of the, like, really high end, like Michelin star level restaurants. Do you know how he got his start? He's never been to culinary school. He got his start as a teenager, washing dishes in a restaurant. People are paying tens of thousands of dollars to go to culinary school, and there's an on-ramp sitting here that starts at $15 an hour to wash freaking dishes? And this is Texas, right? Like, Texas is a right-to-work state. We have less expense to live down here, but our, our wages typically have been lower than the rest of, of a lot of the country, especially when you look at, like, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, Houston, San Antonio. I'm not talking about rural communities like – If you look at similar-sized cities, we typically pay less. We're starting to pay more. Do you know why? We're open for business. That's why. There's tremendous opportunity. Don't let it pass you up, guys. Go out. Talk to your employers. Get what you want from them now. Do it respectfully and professionally. Maybe we should do a show next week on how to do that. But really, like, go in. state clearly what you want. Clearly why it's a benefit to you and them both. And don't make it a demand. Watch how quick they do things that they wouldn't have done three years ago. Because what is their option? And this is part of why the tide's turning and we're winning as well, because people are like, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting the jab. We're going to fire you. Go ahead. Fire me. There's a point where the numbers stop working. You can't find anybody to work now anyway. You're going to fire people for not being jabbed. And all the people that don't have jobs that want a job are not having jobs because they refuse to be jabbed. Your company's going to go out of business. You're going to go bankrupt. There's a big tide turning. I don't think I have it in my uh, bullet points, so I'll, I'll hit it here real quick. Austria and some other place just said we're locking down everybody that doesn't have the jab, and they're pretty much locking down the whole country, but they're like double locking down the non-jab. And they said the police and the military are going to go out, and they're going to put down any protests. So the police are like, you know what? Fuck you. We're done. So like the Austrian police literally joined the protest and there's photos out today where it looks like it looks like millions of people to me in the street. Like it's as far as like you put a wide angle lens on a drone or up in a helicopter and you get as far up back as you can and you can't see the ends of the crowds. Like they get cut off around buildings and streets and stuff before you see the end of it. The tide is turning and that sucks. Does anybody know where that's from? Dickie Roberts was a pretty good little film when you were able to make comedy that was actually comedy out of Hollywood. Uh good one to watch with your kids, by the way. Dickie Roberts' Child Star. Go look at that one. A lot of little cameos in that. All right. I also had a question about cooking venison without ruining it, and I phrased it in my bullet points, how to cook venison without making it taste like bad liver. I'm going to explain to you why people cook venison and make it taste like shit. Very, very simple. They treat it differently than you would treat a good piece of beef. Like it's some sort of magic red meat that must be obliterated when you cook it because it's from a deer and bad things might be in it. Right. So most of you don't sin against red meat. So when you get yourself like a ribeye or a strip steak or a porterhouse or a fillet, you do not go and cook that thing till it's gray all the way through, do you? No, you don't do that you at least, for the love of God, leave a little pink in it, right? Most of us, we like it kind of reddish, right? Like a little bit of juice going on and everything. And beef has a lot more fat in it than deer does, than venison does. So venison really it could be an elk, it could be a, a deer, it could be uh, like a psychodeer or a fallow deer, like anything in that whole species profile. It, it pretty much ends up being the same way. You're just never going to have the amount of specifically of intramuscular fat, Even a really fatty deer tends to have like tallow all over the outside of the muscle, not running much through the muscle. So it's easy to dry out. So all you have to do to stop ruining your deer meat is cook it like steak. If you don't ruin steak, if you don't ruin steak and you cook your venison like steak, you won't ruin your venison. Now there are certain roasts and like, you know, tougher cuts like, uh, like the hawks, like the bot, you know, the hawks, like I love, I always save the hawks off my venison. Uh, and cook them kind of like Oso Busco, where it's slow cooking, that long duration, developing a flavor that works. But when it comes to like your back straps, your basic steaks, your chops, et cetera, just cook it like what it is. Delicious red meat and don't overcook it, and it'll be fine. I promise you, it's okay to eat rare venison. And those of you that are worried about this uh, chronic wasting disease, it's a prion-based disease. The temperature you have to heat prions at to render them inert so that they can't infect another living being is something like 650 degrees. Cooking your venison well done will have no effect on that whatsoever. And I remind you, there's never been an instance of that disease infecting a human being. You're probably more likely to kill yourself by slipping in the bathtub tonight than you are to get a prion-based disease from venison. And again, Ruining your venison will not do anything to prevent it anyway. We've been eating venison as a species for as long as we can figure out how to make a venison dead. And I guarantee you that our forefathers were not well done cooking their venison because it sucks that way. And that's why it tastes like bad liver and that's why you shouldn't do it. All right. I want to talk real quick because everybody's like gasping and clutching pearls over the crypto issue that's in the infrastructure bill. And I want to talk about why it'll probably be fixed. And why it's not as bad as it seems anyway. So if you notice all the bad press around this, it's angled in this way. Could be interpreted as. Could be interpreted as. So what this bill has in it is this, it's the, there's a lot of shit in it to help capture what they consider people ripping them off by not paying taxes. Like looking into your bank accounts and stuff like that, right? Uh, increasing the number of IRS agents, et cetera. And all of this is so they can go to the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, and say, hey, look, we paid for this. Of course, the CBO said, no, you didn't. And then they said, yes, we did. And they passed it anyway, right? But it was to try to create the illusion that they paid for it. These fabricated ideas, if we do this thing, we'll have this much additional tax revenue, which there's no way to know that. And so that's one of, that's, this is one of the things they did in it to try to project We'll have more tax revenue. We'll make all these evil crypto people who are only in crypto to not pay taxes, pay taxes. And so they said anybody that's operating as a broker must do KYC or know your customer. They must have basically a bank account on you and a government ID number and say, this person has an account here. Okay. Great. So what's a broker? And this is where they didn't define what a broker is in the bill. So, You could say that, well, is Exodus, who makes a software wallet, a broker? The answer is they are, and they aren't, depending on how you use Exodus. Exodus has swap technology inside Exodus, and when they do that, they are clearly, whether you like the law or not, I don't obviously, but whether you like the law or not, you would say that's a broker. If I enable a person to convert or buy cryptocurrency, Go from one crypto to another, or to use dollars to buy crypto or sell crypto for dollars. If I do any of that stuff under the reasonably understood legal definition that we've always used in the United States of the word broker, that would qualify. Well, right now, if you use Exodus, do you have to KYC? No, unless you want to you want to use those brokerage services, right? So what this means is a company right now that operates in kind of that same place, but they're not a wallet uh, provider like Coinex says do you have to KYC and they're like well what do you want to do if you don't want to withdraw more than $10,000 a day and you don't want to buy um crypto with fiat you can be no KYC if you want to do you know certain other things plus those things then you have to KYC if you want to partake in leverage and we want you want us to loan you money on margin then we need to know who you are a little bit more and you want to withdraw more amounts of money so CoinEx works in this place where they do KYC and they don't do KYC right under this law Clearly, they are a U.S.-based company serving U.S.-based customers. They would have to KYC everybody once it goes into effects, which is three years from now. I don't see that changing. I don't think the government is going to back off that now that they have that legislation out. But what is a broker? And that's the loophole problem here. What people are saying is they could decide that anybody running a Lightning node is a broker. right? Anybody that provides a software wallet is a broker. Anybody that runs a node is a broker. Of any kind, like a Bitcoin node or a Zcash node or like that doesn't work and they know it doesn't work. So here's why I think they will fix it. And all they have to do to fix it is define broker. They don't have to change anything. It's that like, in this legislation, the word broker means and a very clear legal definition of what broker is. Ted Cruz and what's his name? Um, the guy that was banging a Chinese spy, the Democrat, uh, Swalwell, they co-sponsored legislation. They co-support legislation to fix this. I don't know if you get more bipartisan than that. The crypto people are lobbying heavily now and they're building up their presence on K Street. That's what actually gets things done. So when you got people that divergent from each other on the same page, you know, this isn't even like as divergent as they are. Like you can understand certain places where like Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders would kind of agree with each other. Right. Like that actually is a thing. I know it seems hard to believe when like Bernie's a hard core socialist. And Paul's a, a hardcore libertarian, but it comes to certain things about the way that companies shouldn't, should not be treated, like, and be given these special privileges. They actually agree. And you can see that symbiosis. Swalwell and Cruz, that's as oil and water as it gets. So I think they'll fix this. And even if they didn't, the first thing that would happen is would the government even try to say, you know, a wallet provider is a broker and they need to do KYC on everybody that owns that wallet. If they did, then there'd be a court battle. This would not be something that would just be a slam dunk, we can find you type thing. Um, and I think we're also going to go swing hugely to the right in 2022 and probably 2024. And so for crypto, that's good. You know, I don't play the political ass clown circus game, but for crypto, that is a good thing. The right tends to be a little more friendly to crypto than the left. The other thing is, I guarantee you, that one of the things lobbyists are going to do is get more and more of these ass clowns, senators, and Congress clowns into owning crypto. And once they own crypto, they'll defend the ability to own crypto. That's just going to be the way it is. Um, I also had somebody ask about getting ready for winter with backup heating options. I should probably do a whole show on that. Um, you see I got the, the heater going behind me here today. It's kind of chilly outside today. I think you're, uh, like your big buddy heater with a grill tank adapter is probably your easiest bang for the buck fastest way to be able to provide heat for yourself if your power goes out and that's something i rec i I have that on my t-spat site where people can go and see all my reviews um i highly recommend it and i think it's probably the easiest for the most people if you have access to kerosene like it's pretty hard to find caro around here but if you have reasonable access to kerosene kerosene heaters are even better they're more efficient the dollar for dollar, the how long they last for like spending 50 bucks in fuel is is longer. Uh, they are safe if you use them properly. And I have one that I recommend at TSPAZ as well. That's TSPAZ.com. That's where I do all my reviews and recommendations. And you can always help the show by doing your shopping there, by the way, no matter what you buy. Um, if you don't even have to buy something I recommend, you just start there. And I'll have a TSPAZ item for you in a little bit that's on sale today. But those are kind of your two places to start. The number one thing you can do if your home is laid out accordingly and if you have enough cold weather for it to be justified and if the government has not so interfered yet that it makes it all but prohibitive to have one, it's a wood stove. Wood is abundant. It's available. There's so much of it. If you put a little bit effort throughout a year in storing up wood, even just a plain Jane old wood stove, you're done. Um We had one here, and I actually got rid of it. I got rid of it because it was very inconvenient where it was located in the home, and there's not really a good convenient place in there for a a wood stove to exist. And we live in Texas, where even when we had, you know, that that cold episode last year, we just don't have the long-duration cold. And my house is very well designed on solar aspect. Even when it's 35 degrees outside during the day, we don't run the heat. We get a lot of thermal gain in our winter sun. The house was just... And the people that designed it didn't do it on purpose. They got lucky. So we didn't keep that, but I think that's probably the best thing you can do. Um, natural gas heat is incredibly reliable. Um, so if you have that, you're probably a lot less worried. Uh, propane pig and put in some space heaters. There's a lot of different things that you can do. My big thing is do something. Do something. Because I'll tell you the truth, having a couple of big buddies and a, and a good supply of propane saved our ass. I mean, it saved our ass. Also think about power requirements. And I really recommend everybody have at least one really good, larger size generator and at least one backup, smaller size generator. I don't recommend that you think, I know, I'll run my generator and I'll plug in an electric heater to it. It's an incredibly poor use of generated power. Electric heat is incredibly power-draw heavy. So if it's the only thing you got it's one thing but man think about it and also think about like some little hacks you can do like you know the the candles and the you know terracotta pots on top of them they're not really going to heat a room really well but you know what they will heat like the the space uh, uh, underneath your sink and up against the wall to help keep things from freezing it actually works really well for stuff like that uh one of my friends got by and didn't lose any pipes during that freeze event uh adding that to basic you know heat like a big buddy uh But have something ready. I uh, also had somebody ask me about unions and the problems unions cause versus the opportunities they create. So I think he was like in a pipe fitters union or something like that. He said, you know, I think my profession is going to be around for a long time. Like being able to go into a building and repair or install pipes. That's not something we're going to automate anytime soon. But I agree. And that it's a great way for a young person to get started. But he knows I hate unions. Okay, but I don't hate unions. I hate unions in the form they exist in this country in. I'm also a pragmatist. So if you're a young person, you live in a heavily union trade state, you want to get into a profession like electrical or piping or whatever, the apprentice programs they offer are exceptional, and you can make a really good living. And you can develop a skill in a trade, and even if you move to somewhere where it's not heavily union, that skill in trade transfers, and you can, you can apply it there. I don't have anything against that aspect of what unions do. I don't have anything against unions saying, hey, collectively as employees, we want to go to our employer and negotiate better terms, better pay, better benefits, whatever. Fine with that. I am—I have a problem with fascism. That's the problem I have. I don't have a problem with any private entity, any private group of people, organizing to their own benefit. I have a problem with government being used as an enforcement mechanism and, it, and basically this, this game of political grab ass where everybody has their pants downs, each other's shorts, feeling each other up. So my problem with the way unions work in the United States is they are inherently fascist and they have become tools of the left. And that the bigger problem in that is that that does not represent the best interests or wants of the majority of people in unions. Like the majority of people in unions today, people that work union trades, they might be more conventionally Democrat. If, you, if you're as old as me and you know what Democrat means, if you remember the days of like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, they may tend or trend a little bit more to the majority toward the Democrat side that way. But they're not leftists. They're not leftists. They're not freaking communists. Right. They're not globalists. When you when you know one of the main things you get out of the union is look for the made in the USA label. Right. That's not globalism. So the the way that we've done this with the top union brass basically becoming analogs of the Democrat Party, the Democrat Party being completely and wholly owned by the leftist liberals. Right. And I only really want to use the word liberal. They're not liberals. They're freaking leftists. They're communists. Right. Liberals. If you're a liberal. You should consider the greatest enemy to your liberal ideas at this point to be the Democrat Party. I really mean that. The Democrat Party is not liberal. They're leftist. That's totally a different thing. If you look at classic liberalism, the Democrat Party is more a threat to classic liberalism than the Republican Party is, even though the Republican Party is a pretty big threat to it. It's just the truth, right? So my problem with unions is this this fascist system that's been set up that takes all the money from all these union people that are paying in dues and uses it to elect leftists into office. That has nothing to do with me getting paid fairly. So I don't hate the idea of a union. I hate the way unions are executed in the United States as fascist entities. Um, Last, I wanted to talk about something that I get misunderstood and misquoted about all the time, friends and neighbors. Hyperinflation. Hyperinflation, right? So... People say, Jack Spirico doesn't believe in hyperinflation. Well, it's a thing. It's like saying I don't believe in the moon. Of course, I believe in it. It exists. Okay, well, then Jack Spirico doesn't believe that the United States is headed for hyperinflation. I don't. I'm not sure that you do either. See, to me, if we're going to discuss a term like hyperinflation, right, we have to use the same vocabulary, and hyperinflation has a definition. That's why when I talk about fascism like I just did, generally, I didn't do it today, I think I have a pretty educated audience at this point, but I'll, I'll explain what is fascism. When I say we have a fascist economy in the United States and people start tweaking out about Hitler and concentration camps or whatever, and I'm like, that's not fascism. That's something a fascist entity did. Here's the definition of fascism. And so once we have a clearly defined definition for what fascism is, Then we can discuss it. We can disagree, but at least we're discussing the same thing. So what is hyperinflation? It has a definition. 50% sustained monthly inflation, which will result in about 1,200% inflation over a year. So for us to enter a hyperinflationary state, as defined when you use the word, inflation must be 50% sustained month over month. So everything... Goes up 50% in November and then everything goes up 50% again in December over the new, so over the new high. So it was $1.50 and then it goes 50% up from $1.50 and it goes 50% up for that and it has to do that sustained for at least a three month period before it is defined by economists as hyperinflation. So when I say I don't expect in the near term anyway, hyperinflation, that's what I mean. What is 5% per, per month, is it destructive to the economy? Is it a disaster for society, especially the working class? It is, is it god-awful? Is it freaking something that most people would then call hyperinflation? Yeah, it is, but it's not hyperinflation. So it's very important when you listen to me talk that if I say something is or is not going to happen and you disagree... And this is true for anybody, not just me. I'm just I try to be really specific. Like, I think it's important when you use a word to know what the word means and to answer a question or give an opinion based on the definition of the word, not what you think it means. Right. From that horrible old 80s movie. Right. That word doesn't mean what you think it means. Or I do not think that word means when you think that's a terrible movie. You guys, you got me to watch that. God, was that a god awful movie. A princess bride or something. God, it was terrible. I know it's going to piss people off, but yeah, that's what, that's what hyperinflation means. 50% per month sustained. Now, can that happen here? Yes. Do I see the economic indicators of that occurring at this time? No. No. Plain and simple. Does that mean that you don't need to worry about inflation? Nope. Never said that. Never said inflation wouldn't be a problem. Never said inflation might... Crippling inflation and hyperinflation do not mean the same thing. So, does Jack Spirico see crippling inflation in 2022? You bet your fucking ass I do. You better start thinking about how you're going to deal with it. But hyperinflation, no. I don't. And I would even say that the inflation we've experienced in 2021 is on the Nat's ass edge of crippling. It took us to the brink of total crippling of the economy, but we didn't quite go over the edge yet. And crippled, what does that mean? That means it cannot function as we expect it to function. It doesn't mean it's all gone. There's nothing left of it. I think that the real building back, right? You know, oh, think about this, right? I I thought about this recently, like build back better, right? Like Biden's thing. You know what build means? To make something. You know what? Back? send you know synonym for back? Again. Better. Well, better than it is. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Make again great. You're running for office as the President of the United States. You come up with build back better. You're running against a guy that says make America great again. The Democrats can't do anything without stealing shit. They even stole Trump's freaking stupid slogan, MAGA. BBB is MAGA, man. Build back better, make great again. Sorry, it is. But uh, I don't know, with that, let's go ahead and uh, I'll throw it out now uh, for questions and comments. I'm going to drop an invite link in. Please only use the invite link if you know what you want to say and you have good audio and video and want to come on with me for a bit here. And we don't need people to do it, but if you want to, I'll at least throw that out and make it available. And, uh, I, uh, I hope you guys are enjoying this, uh, these, these formats. This is like, I feel when I do these shows like this, that it's a lot like when I was in my car, like it's completely on the fly. All I have are bullet points. And I have to just roll, man. I, since it's live, I can't slow down. I can't hit pause. I can't fact check something. Like, i got to have my shit together, and I kind of like that. Uh, first question that came in, let me, uh Stan says, how do you like your Start9 embassy? Interesting story. So I've been putting off having it shipped because I've been waiting for the new version. And I was like, you know what, I'm not waiting anymore. So on Friday, I, I emailed Matt over there and said, go ahead and ship mine. And And I had it like a day later. I think it was Thursday I asked them to ship it, and I like had it by Saturday. So this morning I went to start it up, and I might have got a bad one. I don't know yet. I'm waiting to hear back from Matt. But when you plug it in to do the setup, it's supposed to make, like, a beep and then a chirp, and then it's ready to be activated. Mine neither beeped nor chirped. So, And there's no, like, power indicator lights or anything on it. So I don't know yet. Uh, I will tell you this, though. I've been really digging deeper into what Start9 Embassy can do for privacy, security, et cetera. Um, and all the tools that it has, and it's kind of blown me away. I am going to be removing some sponsors. You'll know when they disappear uh, in December, and I'm opening some spots to bring in some new sponsors. Start9 has agreed to become a sponsor of the show, and they also have agreed to start providing segments of, like, what you can do with the Start9 Embassy as part of that sponsorship. As I go forward, if I bring in another sponsor here or there, I am looking for people that can contribute to the community beyond sending me a monthly check. You know, that's great. Um, you know, I'm looking for sponsors that are and I'm not really looking for a lot. I, right now, I don't know if I'm even going to bring anybody else on because I'm going to pare down. I'm only going to have six sponsors. So I'm going to do three shows a week that mention sponsors and two each time. And then nobody gets a week skipped anymore. And I think that makes the sponsorships more valuable. And if you see somebody disappear, it doesn't mean I don't like them anymore. It doesn't mean I don't think you should do business with them. Some of them will remain discounters. But all they want to do is cut a check and, and, and get traffic. And I think some of them, you know, I do get new listeners all the time, but I have had people that have listened to this show for so long. Like if you're going to buy this thing, you've bought this thing. Right. So, and a couple of them haven't been great on Panda Bill. So they're definitely getting cut. Um, But, yeah, so when I say I'm looking for sponsors, what I'm saying is if I bring another sponsor on at this point, I'm looking for people that can bring contribution to the community because not only do I think that makes them more valuable to us, but I think it makes us more valuable to them. If you have, like, an instructional once a week coming from Start9, like a two-minute instructional, here's this app, here's how you install it, here's what it does, here's how it works, you're more likely to want to be a long-term customer of Start9. Anyway, so I don't know yet, and that's, you know, sometimes bad stuff happens. Sometimes electronics fail, but I'm sure they'll take care of it. Um, next, uh, Scott says, thoughts on growing sprouts for chicken feed versus buying chicken feed? Okay. Um, you're not going to get enough protein in sprouts to feed chickens exclusively sprouts. Probably the best feed that you can make sprouts for chickens or ducks or any livestock that will eat it is black oil sunflower. And that is pretty decent protein, but it's also really high in fat. And that's incredibly valuable, especially during your winter term. So I would definitely do it. I do do it. And I just use plain old bird seed black oil sunflower for that. That makes it really cheap. I think you're still going to have to feed some sort of prepared feed unless you have other things that you're growing. I don't think you can do it on sprouts alone. I think it's a great thing to do in the winter and the reason I think it's a great thing to do in a winter is because your birds have less to forage on and so you're making up the difference I'm not saying you um, shouldn't do it in the summer or whatever but I think like it's something really important to look at doing in the winter next up Salvatore Salvador Salvatore Salvatore says what's new and exciting on your Thanksgiving table this year um, not much, man. We're doing pretty bland. I wouldn't say bland. Like we're pretty, we're doing a pretty typical Thanksgiving. Um, we're going to do turkey. We're going to do, um, you know, gravy. I'm going to do my own stuffing and I will put out, you know, if it turns out the way I think it's going to, like how to make it. Um, but I'm basically, you can probably make it yourself. I'm going to use like a, a, a sage based breakfast sausage. Uh, I'm going to use chopped pecans maybe put some egg in it as a binder and celery and onion. And I'm going to make basically uh, stuffing that's keto and that'll be highly keto. And I'll make regular stuffing because the fam likes it and whatever. And I'm going to eat a little bit of regular stuffing and I'm going to eat a little bit of mashed potatoes and I'm going to eat some very high carb gravy. I'm not going to mound my plate with it. Mostly I'm going to eat turkey and that freaking sausage stuffing. I like my, my mouth's watering thinking about that. Now we have the extended fam coming over and we're actually doing our Thanksgiving on Friday. To, for some family reasons and some other things. But we're having, like, the extended fam come over Friday evening, and I'm thinking about throwing down with something a little different for them, you know. We have an awful lot of shark steak in the uh, freezer. Maybe I'll make some shark steaks, just let people try shark steak or something like that. I, I don't know, but we're going to be pretty, pretty mundane and boring. I'm actually thinking, like, many years ago, uh, Chef Keith Snow did a, uh, episode on how to cook basically your turkey for Thanksgiving, right? Without screwing it up. And I'm thinking about running that as a rewind tomorrow, um, given a short week. And then of course we'll have the Thanksgiving special, um, on, uh, on, on Wednesday, like we always do. Uh, what are some good conventional and unconventional ways of investing? Oh boy, is that an open-ended question. I don't know if I would have took it if I'd have read it before I clicked the link and, and made it show up in the video. Um, man yeah, that there's no way I can answer that in just a segment but I would say like conventional investing is generally investing in securities like stocks and ETFs and funds you got to know what you're doing and that that's been really good to me in the last two years I'm just gonna be honest like I've made a lot of money with conventional investing in the last couple of years uh, the stock market you could have almost thrown a dart at the board and made money in the last two years with it uh, other than that that big dip right when COVID started. And a lot of us threw money in when that dip happened because we knew they were going to put it on artificial life support. So um, real estate's probably your best conventional investment though. I can't get into it today. It'll go too long. I got to wrap up soon. Um, but real estate has so many advantages. It's harder now because there's more competition for it. There's greater risk that the property itself will devalue during a correction. But in general, rental income from real estate, and continuous refinancing of real property to to, to provide cash flow that somebody else is covering the debt on that has no tax consequences. It's probably the best conventional investment you can make. Unconventionally, you know I'm going to say? Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the best unconventional, for now, investment that I think you can make with your money long-term. If you're of the mindset that if there's a a big bear market and it, it drops really bad or something like that, that uh, you're going to be all right. Like this is not, I want the money next week. If you put Bitcoin, money in a Bitcoin that you plan on spending next week or next month or even like next quarter, I think that's pretty foolish. It is a volatile asset, but it has a very clear long-term track record. Um, otherwise, the best thing you can invest in it and that really shouldn't be considered unconventional, but I consider it unconventional because people don't think this way, you. And specifically, cash flow based business. That's the best business or that's the best investment I've ever made is stopping to put my time and talent to work for others, put it to work for myself, and then investing in things that we we think of as like necessities, but they're really investments if we do it right, like tools so that we can build things and and, and accomplish our projects and things like that. Investing in your education, et cetera, like that really is priceless if you do it right. Um, Look into self-directed IRAs for real estate investment purposes. Let me comment on that one from VR. There's only one reason you'd do that. There's only one reason you would do that. That is that you have money already in a tax-deferred vehicle like an IRA that you want to free up so that you can use it to invest with. If you put money into there just so you can hold real estate there, you don't understand tax law. Because you pay almost no taxes if you structure real estate right. So there is no need to lock your real estate and put restrictions upon yourself inside an IRA unless you just like, you were a good aunt, you were always putting your 10% away, now you have a half million dollars sitting in an IRA, and boy, I'd like to get at some of that money and use it for some real estate investing, right? Then I understand it. But if you were smart when you were doing that, remember that all the contributions you made, if you did Roth, are withdrawable without paying tax on them. That's right. If you've contributed $100,000, now you have $500,000, you can take up to $100,000 back out of a Roth and not pay interest and penalties because it's your money you already pay tax on. If it's conventional, 100% is subject to tax and penalties. And, And I really want you to think about it that way. I go out and I invest in real estate. Okay, now I'm creating all kinds of deductions for myself just because I have a business. You pay me rent, but only a portion of it is actual cash flow. As long as I can depreciate the property at a rate that absorbs that cash flow rate, there I'm done. And there's a lot of other things that I can do to generate cash flow out of real estate without paying taxes legally. This is not tax avoidance or something like that. This is following their rules. So we go in IRAs because we want to protect the underlying investment from being taxed. There's nothing less taxed as an investment today when done properly than real estate. So uh, be careful about doing it just because it seems like a good idea. But again, if you need to get at the money and the money's already there, I understand that. And I understand that with a lot of things. Uh, can you go into detail about staking ETH? I have about 2K ETH, should I stake? Okay, uh, no, I can't go into detail about staking ETH. If you want to stake ETH on your own, like run your own node and whatever, it's like 30 ETH to do it, so you don't have enough. You have like half an ETH right there. Uh, the only way you would stake ETH is to use somebody like a Coinbase and get what they're willing to give you under the terms that they're willing to give it to you under. And go look at those terms and decide whether or not you're willing to do that or not. Personally, I did not stake my ETH, and the reason I didn't stake my ETH is I have a feeling that I may end up in a position where I want to exit my ETH position, maybe not all of it, but a large portion of it, during what I expect to be a massive run-up in ETH at a time when a lot of ETH will be held in staking. Because ETH staking is not like staking Algorand, Rand, where I can just spend it and it stops staking. Like there's a lockup period, there's a penalty, and if you do it through like a Coinbase, it, it it I think it's like almost impossible to get it back before ETH 2.0 happens. So no, I can't go deep into it. I don't do it, but I know that if you have a couple grand in ETH, if you have anything less than 30 ETH, which is you know what, that's like uh, 120,000 or something like that. Three, uh, three times four is twelve, right? 120,000. Anything, unless you have at least that much, uh, your options, as far as I know, are going to be to do some sort of co-staking with some other entity, um, and I'm not real pleased with that. All right, so I think that wraps up our questions and comments. We're a little bit over an hour. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I do want to mention, because I, I generally don't do this on the live feeds, that we do have a thing that I talked about earlier today called t which is dot com. And you can always help this show and the work that I do by beginning your online shopping there. And I do have items of the day and the item of the day is something that I own. I use, I pay for it. If I did not do that, I would not suggest you do so. I'm not a guy you can just send shit to and get reviews for. That does occasionally happen. Usually it's because I want to buy something. I'm like, this company's of a size they might give it to me, so I'll ask. But I was going to buy it anyway. Uh, that is not the case here. I, I've been recommending the Streamlight Stylus Pro uh, flashlight as an EDC item forever. I mean, like 10 years. And a listener at one of my workshops came up to me a few years ago with the USB rechargeable version of the light. And I did a cost-based analysis on it, like based on how long the rechargeable light uh, batteries work, how long does it take to pay for itself, and it pays itself back really, really quick. It's totally worth doing versus putting alkaline batteries in, having them wear out, throwing them away. And it'll run on alkaline batteries, so you're not giving up that ability. If like your your rechargeable dies or you don't have a place to recharge it right now, you can still drop in your your alkaline batteries. Um, it's on sale today for 22% off, and you can find it and everything else I recommend at e-spaz.com. So if you uh, like what I do and you want to support us, that's one way you can do. You can also become a member of my MSB. Go to the SurvivalPodcast.com slash members to learn more about that and uh, that's a great program because if you become a member you get a ton of discounts you use the discounts the membership more than pays for itself you support me and it doesn't really cost you any real hard money out of pocket so i uh, wanted to, to let you guys know that and um somebody here's aisle farm boy said his question disappeared i uh i'll do one more you guys want one more come on and uh throw me throw me one or two more questions or comments. Uh, and I'm gonna give Iowa Farm Boy first shot at it since uh, he's there bitching. And I mean that in a good way. And, and we'll chat a little bit more before we wrap up. While I'm waiting on that, for those on the live feed, if you like my shirt, it says I'm not participating in your new normal. These are available where at Soe Tactical Gear, which is original SoeGear.com. Uh, John Willis, awesome dude. I love this shirt. I'd show you the back. It's pretty cool, but I'm not going to do it today because it's cold out and I've got myself a nice little warm spot right here. Uh, still waiting on Iowa Farm Boy, man. Putting a shortcut on my wife's computer for t spas You should see a significant increase, unfortunately, from Philip. <laughs> Thanks, bro. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Do you ever talk about crypto mining on a personal level? Not really. I don't. That's, I'm going to go with uh, Iowa Farm Boy first. I'm going to get Kimberly and then we're going to wrap. This is how important is resting cold duck meat before making sausage? This is gonna be ground anyway. My opinion is it's not. It's not. When I make duck sausage, which I do very rarely because I don't cull many ducks, uh, I let them have such a long life, they're not really worth calling by end of life, honestly. We're just we're not doing commercial anymore. But I used to. When we were doing commercial, like a three year old duck, man, you've had your you've had your turn at life, and it's time to, to graduate. And I came up with making duck Armagnac sausage uh, using a pork and duck blend. And I never rested the meat because if I did, it wasn't because I felt it was necessary. What I will tell you, whenever you're going to grind meat to make sausage, cut it into the sizes you want to put in your grinder and put it in the freezer or you hate yourself. You just you're just a masochist. You want to be miserable. You want slime coming out of your grinder. Always freeze meat at least partially before you grind it. But no, there is no need to rest a meat because it's also going to like when you make it into a sausage, that sausage is going to rest anyway, right? So resting is prior to cooking or freezing. And I know I just said freezing. We're not freezing it into like solid frozen. When you freeze your meat before it goes into a grinder, it should be the kind of thing where you, you pick it up and you push on it and it feels kind of frozen. If you do that with your grinder, and the other thing that I'll do with a grinder, I'll literally sit with a bowl of ice. And when that grinder starts to warm up a bit and it's warming the meat as it goes through, I'll throw a handful of ice, swap a bowl out, and push push some ice through it and chill down the screw and the bell housing. And I even take my screw before before I grind, I throw it in the freezer when I put the meat in there, set a timer so you don't forget, and your sausage making will go much, much better. All right. Kimberly says, do you ever talk about crypto mining on a personal level? No. You know why? Because I don't do it and I don't talk about shit that I don't know how to do and that I don't do. I did some mining with a, a, a partner uh, who ran kind of like buy your equipment, lease it, and then they, he mines for you. Uh, that kind of fell apart. That really hurt when it did. It hurt me a lot. I'm sorry to anybody that got caught in that. Um, but since then I have not done any mining. I did get my mining equipment from that individual because I did own the equipment and I sold it to somebody that mines. I think it's a good thing to do, but I think it's it's like so many things. Like I tell people all the time when I put out all the stuff that you can do for self sufficiency and self reliance, I'm like, here's how you raise rabbits, here's how you raise quail, here's how you grow a garden, here's how you do aquaponics, here's how you do hydroponics. Like most of that stuff, other than rabbits, I do or have done. But we can't all do everything, and I don't think everybody's going to mine. But I think it's a good thing to look into and learn about. And if you want to mine, there's really, I think, two ways to do this right now. One, you go with kind of building your own rigs and stuff like that, and you're probably best off mining something like an altcoin. Even if you want Bitcoin, you mine the altcoin, which is anything that's not Bitcoin, and you sell the altcoin for Bitcoin. Or you go on something like another, I can tell you a strategy that's working for a friend of mine. He has a ton of GPU rigs, and he sells hash power on nice hash. So basically, it's like somebody wants to, you know, mine diddly-doo coin or whatever, and they say, I'll pay X amount per hash. And then they pay him, and he turns his rig, or rigs, however many hashes they want to, you know, how much hash power they want to buy for how long, onto that, and it deposits to that person's address, and that person pays him in Bitcoin or NiceHash pays him in Bitcoin as a broker. I, I don't know exactly how it works. But that way, he's essentially mining Bitcoin with GPUs, but he's not mining Bitcoin. The other way, I think there are companies that do a really good job of selling top end ASICs and hosting for you and everything. And you just get the like you don't ever actually have to touch the equipment. I think if you're going to go with Bitcoin now, there's some places to do that really, really well. And uh, you still own the equipment. And uh, Peter McCormack has talked about that on what Bitcoin did. And he said he laid out the numbers. And basically, he's had his miners running for like three months. They've made him a significant amount of Bitcoin, not enough for a full ROI yet. But he could sell the miners right now due to a shortage for more than he paid for them. So he looks at even his mining equipment as fairly liquid. Maybe it takes a week. But he can get his money plus out of the miners. That seems to make sense. It's not my thing. I prefer to spend my time. The way I mine Bitcoin, I bring value to people, and I deliver value, and then they choose to voluntarily associate and pay for that value. Some of them pay in crypto or Bitcoin, and that's the direct path. The indirect path is I take my excess capital, and I buy Bitcoin with it. And so we can mine Bitcoin by actually mining Bitcoin, or we can mine Bitcoin by storing our, so on a personal level. Take your personal energy that you convert it into currency and put it into money. That that's that's the best way I can see to personally mine Bitcoin. Uh, with that, I uh, appreciate everybody being with me today. We had a really good turnout today. We were up almost 150 people at our highest. Uh, we're down to like 120 now. It's still pretty good for a live stream. Uh, especially one that wasn't pre-announced. I didn't announce this till this morning. I wasn't sure I was going to do it. Uh, thanks to everybody, uh, that, that, that was here. Okay. I'll do one more. Andrew says, have you can still, have you still continued with small batch meads and ciders? I've been listening to earlier shows on the subject starting this week. I think you should do it. I think it's a great idea. I have made a very, very conscious decision to drink a lot less. Um, those of you that were just at the workshop especially the Saturday night portion might think not so much but I will tell you that even when I was walking around drinking my vodka tonics a lot of times they were just tonics or club sodas or whatever right like cuz there's no sugar in. Uh so I have made a really conscious effort to drink less and one of the things I've done for myself to make that easier is I'm not constantly making a gallon of wheat of meat, a week a gallon of meat a week anymore. I think it's an incredible skill but I think all of us need to at different times assess for our health. And our life, like, am I putting too much of substance A into my body? Uh you guys know I'm a huge advocate for freedom and liberty. I'm a huge advocate for cannabis, but I know people that overdo the cannabis. And you can see it in their behavior and in how they act. You know, when it comes to cannabis, I, I'm a classic one hitter quitter, man. That's like that's that's my side of that, you know. And I I, I actually think like with cannabis kind of leading into that, um I, I very much Graham Hancock, who I found through Joe Rogan. Uh, got into my head with it. And he said, I don't think we should be using like, um, like cannabis or even like, uh, some of the psychedelics like mushrooms or other hallucinogenics, DMT or what have you, ayahuasca as recreational things that it's actually kind of a, it, it it's, it's short selling the value they have and opening our minds and their ability to reflect and what have you. And, uh, I don't, I don't have anything against the person that wants to get stoned and just sit around and talk bullshit about the back of their hand or whatever. That's fine but i have found it's a much more rewarding thing to have a drink or two and then contemplate things maybe in a good discussion or to have you know one or two hits of a substance the government says we're not supposed to have and uh then to think and to remain clear-headed enough to actually allow that opening to be valuable or to use medicinally like i find that if i one hit or quitter uh like 15 minutes before i go to sleep i sleep really 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 good you know, and maybe I don't as well. And, you know, I've actually uh, one of our, our supporting vendors um, in the MSB uh, brought a product to the, the workshop, totally legal product. It's CBD and CBN, I think, or C, something like that. It's two cannabinoids in an oil. And, man, that's been a great sleep aid. And I think that we need to start looking at these substances less as a party thing. And more as a medicinal or contemplative thing. And I think that includes alcohol and that's not me on a soapbox. If you want to, if you want to have a glass of meat every night or two, I don't care as long as it's not ruining your life. But I think we all need to think a little bit more about these substances. And I'll say one last thing on this. It's something that I had to come to terms with. Uh, I've been fairly well off financially for longer than TSP has been around, but I've also had. A lot of obligations, right? Like I had to be places. I had to go places. I had to do things in order to earn that income. When TSP became successful, it's, it's almost like hitting like a celebrity status, not in like being that famous or anything, but having the freedom to destroy your life if you choose to. That's why I put part of why I put so much weight on all of a sudden at 1130. If you want to make a martini, there's no one going to stop you, right? Like, and, and you have the, the means to acquire food and drink and other things that maybe you don't need to do in excess. And then you've lived your whole life with a belief this is how you celebrate. And then all of a sudden you have unfettered access to it. And I think that if you look, a lot of people that that kind of hit it and hit the stride and get this kind of freedom, they they tend to do things that are detrimental to their health or their life or their relationships. And, you know, I never did anything that seriously jeopardized it long term. But I certainly put on weight when I knew how not to. I certainly consumed more alcohol than I should have. Um, and I certainly probably didn't destroy, but probably at least dinged a relationship or two. And uh, I think that the more we can do to rein that in and develop our self-control, the less we need somebody else to do it for us. So not the soapbox, or nothing, but I do hope you guys enjoyed that. Hope you enjoyed the entire thing. Thanks to everybody that hung out with us uh, for the entire uh, episode.